Why should I listen to this message? Uh, I hope, actually, that that's a question that people ask when people like me stand up um, to speak. We don't automatically um, listen attentively to everyone who speaks or every topic that is spoken about. And uh, there are, on the surface of it, some pretty good reasons, I think, to doubt the value of anyone like me standing up and teaching the Bible. After all, um, we know, for instance, that the Bible is one set of scriptures amongst many. The Hindus have their Bible, the, the, the um, uh, Muslims have their, their holy works, the, um, uh, uh, the, the great religions all have uh, books that they claim to be authoritative. Why should we listen to someone who teaches from the Christian Bible? Christianity doesn't have a very good record either in some respects. And one wonders whether it's not the Bible that has caused that. The big issue in our culture at the moment is, um, is, is the issue of homosexuality. And many people suggest that uh, Christians... Uh, Christianity and the Bible promotes a sort of rabid homophobia. An enormous number of people have decided not to bother to listen to the Bible at all because of that. And uh, some would suggest, well, why should we listen to anything old? I think it's, um, uh, it's in the Huckleberry Finn. Huck becomes very excited uh, because his Christian um, housekeeper, I think she is, uh, starts, to, starts to speak about Moses. And uh, he gets very excited. He said, I, I got all heated up. But by and by she let out that he was dead. <laughs> and I don't take no account of dead people. <laughs> um, there's perhaps a pretty good reason to not listen to ancient things but to listen to the best wisdom that we have today and the Bible was completed 2,000 years ago why should I listen to this message? actually in a slightly different way Paul anticipates that his readers will be asking exactly that question Uh, he is coming to uh, Rome he hasn't visited Rome before he knows that there is a church there Christians there but they don't owe uh, that church doesn't owe its foundation to Paul and so they owe him nothing why should they listen to him this travelling evangelist who's about to, to pass through More, moreover they're, they're slightly suspicious of his motives I bet he wants money We have um, uh, some people that we um, knew an elderly couple years ago who were not Christians and uh, she started searching for um, God and for some sort of understanding. And her husband, who was a very gracious man, but he wasn't particularly interested at that time, he agreed to give her a lift to a Bible study. And um, uh, as she got out of the car, he said... Make sure you don't buy anything. 
um, whenever money comes into focus, our suspicions uh, are raised, and Paul is going to uh, be frank that, in part, he's looking for money from this church. Good reason for them to be suspicious. And, of course, Rome is the sort of great central um, uh, city and culture of the world at that time when Paul and uh, his message comes from the periphery of the world. It was the eternal city. It was the seat of, uh, uh, of, of, of learning and so on. Why should Rome listen to the provinces? So Paul uh, um, wants to set out why they should listen to him. And incidentally, he therefore touches upon why we, if we have a healthy scepticism and caution about listening to old books and people like me, actually ought to take seriously what Romans is going to tell us. He answers three questions, I think, in these first seven verses. Here they are. First question, who are you, Paul? Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. There's an extraordinary humility and dignity in that first phrase he uses of himself, a servant of Christ Jesus. Literally, it's a slave of Christ Jesus. He sees himself as, as very lowly in one sense. You don't listen to slaves Particularly in Rome, full of, full of um, um, Roman citizens, slaves are there to do your bidding. Well, in one sense he says, I am a slave. I, I, I must confess that. But I am a slave of someone unique. Christ Jesus. And that gives me enormous <laughs> dignity. More than that, he says, called to be an apostle. He is alluding back to that extraordinary Damascus Road experience that um, I suspect all of us will have heard about, where, where a light shone in front of Paul as he was heading off to persecute the Christians. And Jesus spoke to him, and he was, he was changed at that moment, and became, rather than a persecutor of Christianity, became a follower of Jesus Christ. He, he had an experience that that authenticated him for that message that he was about to, about to give. He knew he was called um, to be an apostle, one sent out with the message. And he was set apart for the gospel of God. Perhaps that's the most significant thing that he says. Because he says, what, what he's been called to do, the person that he serves, Jesus Christ, um, is central in the gospel of God. Gospel, gospel's a word, um, you could translate it good news, but it, but it had stronger overtones than that. 
it was um, in, uh, in the secular world often used of a proclamation of a great victory, particularly a great victory of, uh, say, one of the Caesars. When uh, Julius Caesar won his great battle, the, the gospel of Julius Caesar's victory was proclaimed. But this is the gospel of God. This is the good news that God has been victorious in his great eternal plans. Who are you, Paul? Well, perhaps he's saying implicitly, I don't necessarily expect you to believe me just on the basis of this, but I, but I do feel that I have a significant calling. I've been called to be a slave of Christ. I've been set apart to uh, tell you the gospel about God. Please listen on. Second question. Okay, Paul, what is your message? Regarding... uh, Sorry, but let's go from verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a long and complicated sentence, but let me, let me pick out the key things that he says. He says that this gospel was promised beforehand uh, through the prophets. In other words, he's saying this wasn't just some bright idea that someone cooked up yesterday. This is not just the wonderful new insight that Jesus had sitting under his bow tree or whatever. No, this is a consistent message that has been coherently unfolding for centuries, even millennia. Most especially, he says, the prophets who prophesied um, uh, five, six, seven, eight hundred years before had been predicting this gospel, this um, message about Jesus. Just to give you one example of that, one, uh, one of the most prominent ones, if you read Isaiah chapter 53, you will find an extraordinary description of the suffering and torture of a man who dies as a sacrificial lamb for the sins of God's people. Indeed, that description so accurately um, uh, anticipates what the Gospels describe about the death of Jesus on on the cross, that um, a hundred years ago, sceptical scholarship was universal, universally agreed. This must have been a later insertion into the, into the book of Isaiah. They just must have done that. This predicts Jesus uncannily accurately. Uh, they didn't have any documents, of any copies of the prophecy of Isaiah, where the copy itself was, was, uh, came before the time of Jesus. 
was clearly written before the time of Jesus, but the only copies they had were relatively late. So they could support that, that uh, assertion. that This must have been added by a later scribe after they'd seen the death of Jesus. And then in 1947, fascinatingly, uh, um, a little shepherd boy was throwing stones into caves in, uh, in Palestine and heard the stone hit a piece of crockery which smashed. And he climbed up and found the most extraordinary collection of old documents which are now called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And amongst those was a copy of the prophecy of Isaiah, including Isaiah 53, that was definitely um, written, uh, copied out before the time of Jesus. And all of those sceptical scholars had to eat humble pie. Because now it was indisputable that Isaiah 53 came before the time of Jesus. It predicted the sufferings of Jesus, just as the New Testament says that it did. This is a message, says the Apostle Paul, that has been unfolding for millennia. It it is a consistent story. You Romans need, need to listen to it, he says. We need to listen to it. What else does he say about his message? Well, he says two very, very important things. First of all, he says, in in a very brief form, but I'll expand it for you, he says that Jesus is the fulfilment of a human history of the whole world. He's touching on that when he calls, when he says who as to his earthly life he was a descendant of David because uh, they would have known what he was talking about let me set out the story as it unfolds in the Bible remember right at the beginning in the Bible God created the world good but Adam and Eve rebelled against God they, um, they sinned remember they ate the forbidden uh, fruit And we learn at the beginning that it was actually human sin that messed up everything. It it corrupted their relationship with God so that they no longer had a a face-to-face healthy relationship with God. It corrupted their relationship with each other. So from that moment, Adam and Eve and all their descendants have been at odds with one another. And it even corrupted their relationship with the world and the world itself. We are told that the, 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 the curse that they brought into the world that damaged their relationship with God and with one another actually overflowed into a curse that affected the whole world. The Bible says everything that is wrong fundamentally is wrong because we who were made to look after this world and cared for it, care for it, actually rebelled against God and sinned. And then um, uh, a few chapters later after that, that disaster has been sort of unfolding in generation after generation, a few chapters later we meet a man called Abraham. Abraham is given the most extraordinary promises. And they, they, 
they, they, they, they can be crystallised into one simple message. God is going to reverse all that has gone wrong there in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He's going to reverse everything that's gone wrong through Abraham's descendants. And from that moment on, the Bible story is tracing then Abraham's descendants. Who is going to do this? To to bring about this great reversal where the world can be restored again. And uh, the, the high point that the Old Testament gets to is the man whom Paul mentions here, David. David is a superhero. David is everything you long uh, to be. Um, And he unites God's people, he establishes the kingdom, and it starts to look like under David's rule, everything's going to get sorted out. And then David sleeps with Bathsheba and has her husband murdered. And that that sin becomes pivotal in the whole of the Old Testament story because um, that sin crystallises for us no one is going to do this no human being is going to do this if even David can't reverse all the problems of the world then who can? The rest of the Old Testament story sort of trundles on in more or less levels of chaos, things getting worse and worse and worse. But no one even approximates to great David. But God always affirms that he doesn't, when he makes a promise, he doesn't withdraw it. The promise he made to Abraham that all the problems of the world would be reversed that is reiterated to David that one of David's descendants will achieve that and when we get to the New Testament we're still waiting for that descendant of David so uh, um, it is significant when, uh, that Paul says as to his human descent he was a descendant of David this Jesus says Paul is the answer to the whole of the world's problems from the beginning of creation. But then he says something else, something very uh, um, um, uh, complementary to that. It's not only Jesus is not only the culmination of a, of the story of human beings. He's the culmination of a story about God. Um, He makes it plain, you see, that Jesus has a unique um, identity. Not only a descendant of David, but he is God's son, verse 3. And verse 4, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our our Lord. Um, Some people say, suggest that he was only appointed God's son after he had risen from the dead Um, you could read it like that so through the spirit of holiness he appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead but that would be to contradict what he's already said that he's his son in verse 3 it seems much more 
likely that the understanding of that verse is that, is that he was finally declared, finally revealed, finally established undisputably as the Son of God when after he died on the cross he rose again to eternal life and, and, um, uh, and, and established in public his status as the Son of God. But why is it important that he's the Son of God? Well, it's actually very, very important because of what I was saying about the human story of the Old Testament. The human story of the Old Testament is leading us inexorably towards the conclusion no human being can reverse the problems in this world. How true is that? How obviously true is that in our world? It's pretty indisputable. But then the prophets in particular start to say that actually God will step in to reverse the problems of this world. Indeed, God as a human being will step in to reverse the problems of this world. The prophecy of Isaiah, for instance, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 Remember the famous, it's the Christmas one, you've heard it. The virgin will be with child and she will give birth uh, to a son. And he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. He will be a child from a woman, albeit miraculously born. But he will also be called God with us. And the prophets again and again hint at this coming descendant of David in the human way who will be also God stepping on to the stage because no mere human being could sort out this world how does he do it? he does it in the most extraordinary way remember Adam and Eve they brought the problems into this world through their sin. And ever since it has been human sin that has driven the problems of this world. So in order for it to be reversed, someone needs to pay for that sin. And Jesus does it in dying on the cross. It's massively important that a human being is dying for human sins. Because otherwise there would be no sense of justice. But you see, there's a real problem. If God is just visiting the consequences of human sin on that third party, how is that just? But if at the same time it's God saying, no, I'm going to take the consequences of human sin on my shoulders as God as a human being dying for human sins but as God actually saying no third party is going to pay for this and you're not going to pay for this because you can't I'm going to pay for this God then works out his perfect justice in this world and he's perfectly merciful to his people So it is massively important 
that Jesus has these two identities. He is a descendant of David. He is the Son of God. And the two come together in Jesus, dying as God the Son, the human being, on the cross for our sins. This is the victory of God. This is the gospel of God. This is how he defeated the power of human sin in this world. And from now on, it is just a matter of time until that principial defeat is established as an absolute and complete defeat when Jesus comes again and establishes his renewed heaven, his new earth which now has sin eradicated and is populated by people whose sins were paid for by Jesus' death on the cross. That that is massively important. What is your message, Paul? Says the sceptic. Well, my message is about the most fundamental things in the whole world says Paul. It's not just a little story in a corner. It is about this world. It answers the world's deepest questions. What's wrong with this world? It was G.K. Chesterton who, uh, in response to uh, a a question that the Times, I think, set up about a hundred years ago, wrote in uh, uh, What is Wrong with the World? Uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote in, Sir, what's wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's it. What's wrong with the world? It's us, we have to admit it. It's difficult to deny it as the problems of this world are so obviously human-oriented again and again and again, whether it's war or, or economic problems or pollution or whatever. How can I be forgiven? You can be forgiven because... God paid for your sins in Jesus. Marganita Lasky, a humanist from years ago, said, what I envy about Christians is your forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. Well, we do. A God who set as a centrepiece of the whole of history his great costly act of personal forgiveness for everyone who would choose it. Will this world ever be put right? Oh yes it will. And the promise, the anticipation of that is Jesus' resurrection from the dead, says the, the Apostle Paul. What happens when I die? Well there is resurrection for you too. And then we will be judged according to whether we lived by that great gospel story and asked for forgiveness for ourselves or whether we rejected it. Why should I listen to this message? This message that Paul's going to unfold over time in his letter to the Romans. Well, we should listen because it is the the, the, uh, the greatest message ever it is an all encompassing message encompassing all of history 
all of creation and every facet of reality from the physical world to the mysterious spiritual worlds of God. Oh yes, it's a message worth listening to. Third question. Who are you, Paul, was the first one, remember? What's your message, Paul? Here's the third question. What do you want from me, Paul? Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. It is a call to all, including them in Rome, including us 2,000 years later. It's to all the Gentiles, that is all the non-Jews, that is all the nations. But it is a it is a, a quite specific call that Paul describes as the obedience that comes from faith. Of course, when we read the word faith, we think, oh, it must be a leap in the dark or some, some, some wild, mysterious thing that, uh, um, that, 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 that magically Christians exercise um, uh, who was it said faith is believing what you know ain't true actually I think that's Mark Twain as well um, uh, but that's not what the, how the Bible describes faith faith is a reasonable trust we can't see everything but it is a reasonable trust it is reasonable for us to investigate the facts about Jesus it is reasonable for us to examine this story of the whole of history and the whole of creation and say does it make sense of my deepest experience and understanding of this world? It is reasonable to look at the fruit, says Jesus, that comes from this faith, because um, by their fruit you will know them. We don't abandon our minds when we exercise faith. But it is a step that we say, I can't see everything, but it makes enough sense that I will put my trust in it. Actually, more than that, I will put my trust in God and in Christ and indeed my delight I will find in them. I will not only see that it's true, but I will see that it's good and attractive and for me. James says that even the devil knows about God. He just hates God. Christian faith is trust and taking pleasure in those great truths. But as we, um, as we do that, what is, what is he expecting? He says it's the obedience that comes from faith. It's very important that we under, understand that that is, that is at one level... He is expecting a total transformation of our lifestyle. Jesus was absolutely unequivocal about it, and so is the, is the rest of the New Testament. Everything, everything about 
who we are then becomes subordinated to these great truths and realities that we have embraced. There is nothing off limits. But it is not an embracing of a whole load of rules. Rules create defeated legalists. Rules are what the Pharisees in the Gospels followed. And they are are, um, spoken against uh, with enormous intensity by Jesus. Rules create people um, obsessed by the minutiae of all the right things to do and they create as well hypocrites because nobody can keep even their own rules that they set up. It is not about embracing a a set of rules. Now what it it is saying is this and we're going to see it in more detail unfortunately after Christmas because Paul explains it in Romans 5 to 8 but let me anticipate it. What he's saying is that true faith in Jesus Christ actually creates a new person actually enables us to live in a new kind of way that somehow supersedes those rules enables us to be truly obedient to God it is a massively demanding but massively exciting um, calling To all Gentiles. What do you want from me, Paul? What does God want from us here? He wants everything from everyone. No one is excluded from the call, and nothing is excluded from the scope of what He calls us to. But we will not be the losers. We will be 100% the winners. Because as our life is turned upside down and turned around in that way, we find, as we were seeing with those people last week, we find our lives are transformed for the good forever. Why should I listen to what Paul has to say? Oh, he's, he's had a commission from God that he must discharge. He's going to tell us a message, the good news about God, which is encompasses everything and focuses on Jesus as God and man dying on the cross. And that is a message for everyone, for all of their life. As we listen to Paul's unfolding message of Romans we have every reason to be massively attentive and every reason to expect that it will change our lives